the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Well, for me, last episode was a pivotal point in our podcast for this season because it was a Bible bender for me that the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Israelites was a metaphor for Christ dying on the cross. And I never thought about it that way before, but I really love that concept of um, he parted the Red Sea for us when he died on the cross. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest miracle that the Israelites had ever experienced. And Christ dying on the cross is the biggest miracle that you could ever have in your life. And so I think that's just a really good thing for us to remember as we continue to read all this stuff and just with gratitude appreciate that he did that for us. It was really what they hung their hat on throughout the Old Testament is this is what God did for us. He redeemed us and he did these miracles. And that's kind of what we hang our hat on in the New Testament is that, you know, Jesus did did this for us. us. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Pharaoh had a change of heart, as we saw last episode, and he was going to attack the Israelites. He just one more time wasn't going to let them go. (laughs) But the the Israelites, they were cornered, but then they were protected by the cloud. As we read last time, the cloud that they were looking back instead of looking at. And so God just moved the cloud. And Moses told them, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And just listen to the Lord telling you that still today. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. And he did. And so God provided a way out, parted the Red Sea. The Israelites lived, the Egyptians die, and here we are. Here we are in chapter 15, and we have the song of Moses and Miriam, and it is that. It is the first song in the Bible and the first of three that Moses wrote. Uh, This is a song of praise for what God had done in redeeming his people, and the song is a pause in our story that marks the end of Egypt and the beginning of this new nation, Israel. Verses 1 through 10 describe what God did for Israel. Yeah, and as I read these verses, consider that this is a song. Mm -hmm. and They're celebrating. There's a lot of worship music out there available to you wherever you listen, wherever you um, listen to music, whether it's iPhone or on Spotify or whatever. And a lot of times if I'm going through a season where I'm just having a hard time, if I will put on worship music and allow it to just seep into my soul, it reminds me of all that God has done for me. And it helps me get the focus off of me and onto God. And so I think that that, if you can, as you listen to this reading, think about that, getting the focus off of you and onto God. And that's exactly what Moses did. And that's why he is a leader because um, it could have been easy probably for the Israelites to then start to worship Moses. And he was saying, no, 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 here's who you worship. It's the true God. And it's a celebration. And I love that, that they got to the other side, they saw the Egyptians die and they had a party. They celebrated, they sang because it was was like they knew they were never coming for them again. They had nothing left to fear from the Egyptians. Yeah. And I know somebody who goes a lot down to Haiti whenever there are um, hurricanes or disasters that go down there. And every time she does, she tells this story about when you're down there and there's devastation everywhere. And it's very sad because not only, I mean, there's devastation here Mm -hmm. when there's a hurricane, but there's serious devastation in a country like that. You can hear singing everywhere, she says. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of praise that just honors God. Yeah, it does. And helps you get your mind on him and off of your issues. So here we go. Chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. 
I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Then verse 11 through 18 describe what God is going to do for Israel. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by. Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. The final verses then bring us back to the present as the song is repeated. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. So Israel takes a pause and God is given the worship and the praise. The Israelites sigh in relief, their freedom is secure, and the journey begins in the desert. Verse 22, when Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. Okay, so where did they go? Well, in map 29 in the show notes, it shows that the route God takes the Israelites is in the opposite direction of where they should be going to Canaan, the land of milk and honey, which is northeast of Goshen, not south. Instead, the Israelites follow the cloud, their God, with their shepherd Moses out in front, further south into the wilderness or the desert of Shur. The Israelites make their way through a stony plain for about nine miles as they travel in between the 
gulf and a chain of mountains. Then they have to cross a desert plain of glaring white sand dunes with carts and animals and children and almost two million people crowded together. Think of the noise, the heat, the dust, the thirst. Think of the insipidly slow pace. Why did they go south? Why would God take them hundreds of miles out of their way? Have you ever been camping? Yes. Do you know how much stuff you must pack? I usually make my husband rent an RV. No, that is camping. camping. That's not camping. Think of, I've been camping with Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Think of how much stuff you have to pack just to feed a Boy Scout troop of 15 kids for a weekend. Why would God make the trip longer? There's millions of them. Well, God must have known something they didn't. Of course. The answer the answer is actually in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And there you have it. The answer to why God led them into the wilderness. It was to humble them and to test them. And he humbled them to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he tested them to see if they would or would not keep his commands. It's also worth noting here that that is a Bible verse that Jesus <laughs> quotes when the devil oh, is tempting him in the wilderness. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I you getting ahead of you? You are so ahead of me. Sorry, Susan. No, but I love it. It is in the wilderness that Israel develops their faith. Why does God test us with wilderness experiences? In episode one, the overview of Exodus, we discussed that the story of Moses and the Israelites is the ultimate wilderness story. The Exodus is used in both the Old and New Testaments as an example to us that we, like the Israelites, will have seasons where we feel as if we are wandering in the wilderness. These are seasons of sorrow, suffering, confusion, rebellion, why does God allow such seasons? And the reasons are the same for us as for the Israelites, to humble us and to test us. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. And if you've never understood this verse before, now that you know Moses, you will, because listen to what he says. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that cloud. And they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they came to faith. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, spiritual drink that came from God, manna and water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, God's bringing it all together now. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, even if it means parting the sea, so that you can endure it. God, God will 
will test us like he tested them. And God will build our faith with his provision. God will provide a way out just as he did when he parted the Red Sea, because it is in the wilderness that we become dependent on God. It is in the wilderness that we develop our faith. In Paul's words, we read a hint of what is to come in our current story. The Israelites are going to fall into temptation and God is not going to be pleased with most of them. He doesn't want us to fall prey to the same fate. And if that was a Bible bender for you, the fact that when it says that in the New Testament in Paul's letter, that they're referring back to this story that we just read last episode, that's the reason that we study the Old and the New Testament. And if you're one of those people who I was at one time, I don't read the Old Testament because I don't understand it. Or maybe you don't understand any of this. Maybe you don't understand the New Testament or the Old Testament. Yes, without having the background and the history. That's why we study history. It's much to our kids' chagrin. My kids, certainly. They don't love it. But we do it so that we understand fully what is being told to us at different times in the Bible. And so for me, that was a Bible bender when I first started reading the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. was like, oh, oh gosh, that's, that's why Paul was talking crazy. thing about the weird cloud and yeah. whatever. It actually has a meaning and yeah, a purpose. It does. All right. Now we're going to move on to grumbling and grace. In this episode and in the next, the Israelites are going to face four tests to build their faith and dependence on God. In three of the tests, the waters of Marah, the manna and the quail, and the waters of Meribah, they are going to grumble. And each time, God is patient and provides showing grace despite their lack of faith. He's leading them into trusting him. So here's test one, the grumbling over the waters of Marah. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? This doesn't sound like a big deal, but let's think about this. If you're following along on map 29 in the show notes, Mara, which means bitter, is thought to be in Ain Hawara, halfway down the peninsula to Mount Sinai. So they're like halfway down. Ain Hawara's waters are salty and brackish and bitter even today. Now, Now, picture this scene, a trail of people for miles, two million people. It's hot. Remember, they came through the stony plain first, and then they came through the dunes and the glaring white sand. They are thirsty, but they have been told... Just think of the little gossip through the, you can think of the kids carrying the gossip through the camp, you know, as they, this long trail lays out. Hey, there's water ahead. They found water. Water's coming. You're coming to water, which of course, guess what? Makes them all thirstier. This first group on the trail sees the water, steps up, takes a draught, and gags. The bad news of this bitter water ripples through the camp all the way back along the trail of people. With groans of weariness from the weak and the elderly, groans of fear from the mothers whose children are starting to cry, and groans of frustration from the fathers who cannot provide for their families. Certainly, we can understand such a human reaction. Oh, yeah. And you can't drink salt water anyway, right? You'll die. Yeah, it's bracket. Yeah, and it's bitter. Apparently, this water was bitter. However, then we have to stop and remember the superhuman miracle they just witnessed just a few days ago at the Red Sea. Not to mention the plagues before that. Why didn't they look at Moses and wait? Why didn't they just ask him nicely like, hey, Moses, my nursing wife needs water. The baby's suffering. Can you talk to God about it? Because they were hangry. Why? And we didn't... all know what happens <laughs> exactly. when you're hangry. 
Why did they drop to their knees in prayer and just wait? Why can't they seem to remember that God is above their circumstances? Note, when you face trials, do you grumble? Do you remember that God is above your circumstances? I tried to remember that. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It's so really hard. hard. We're cranky. Yeah. And sometimes I get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh, why didn't I remember that? Yeah. That was, I was yeah. grumbling. All right. Verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. Our man Moses knows what to do and he turns to God, a perfect example of what the Israelites should have done and what we must also learn to do. And God responds with grace by making the bitter water fit to drink. This first trial is a reminder to them of the first plague. For the Egyptians, God made the sweet waters of the Nile unfit to drink. And here for the Israelites, God made the unfit waters of Mara sweet for them to drink. Boy, that God, he's so witty. He is so clever. All right. Continuing on in verse 25. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. You see here almost like the pattern for even missions trip. We provide food and then we get the right to be heard by the people who are satiated. And that's exactly what happened here. He quenched their thirst and then he puts them to the test and gives them kind of the rule. If you pay attention to me, um, you're going to, you're, you're not going to suffer. And God drives home his point. This is a test people. Hello. Do not make the mistake of being like Pharaoh and the Egyptians who did not listen, did not do what was right and therefore suffered. Obey my commands and you will not suffer. And the point can be taken for us is this. God heals us from bitterness if we keep his command. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So this one little story, which is just one line in the Bible, depicts a different scene from the prior scene. The same trail of people for miles. They're hot, it's dusty, they're thirsty, but they have been told there is water ahead. And this time, of course, it makes them even thirstier, but that first tribe steps up to the first spring and it's good. And the second tribe moves past them to another spring and it's good. And so on until we've reached 12 springs for 12 tribes, no groans of fear or frustration. There is order and provision for all. There is even shade for the weary. 12 and 70 are numbers of completion in the Bible. And there are books written about the numbers in the Bible. But here, this is just a contrast picture to the last one of, hey, I've got you and I'm going to do this in a way that is peaceful for you. Yeah. Like Moses said, all you need to do is stand Just still. Step up and trust. Yeah. So chapter 16 now, we have test number two, grumbling and the manna and the quail. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. 
In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So much drama. Oh, I just hear my kids going, I'm starving to death. And I'm like, kids in Ethiopia are starving. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no, I love it when they say, you never cook. You (laughs) never cook anymore, mom. (laughs) Well, the Israelites are exactly one month, just one month into their journey and they're running out of food and they are verbal about it. Grumpy. Verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So they grumble against Moses and Aaron as if it was their fault. But in reality, their freedom, their provisions, their life, everything was because of God, not Moses or Aaron. God is over all of their circumstances and their reliance should be on him. But their grumbling exposes, again, their short-term memory and weak faith. Moses sets them straight. When you're grumbling to me, you're grumbling against God. And that's a great note for us. We look at the Israelites and think they're so foolish. Yet, do we believe that God is over all of our circumstances? Do we grumble about our life? If so, we're actually grumbling against God. And that's also, I'm thinking of the verse in the New Testament, and I don't know exactly where it is at the moment, but it's work as if you're working for the The Lord Lord and not for human master. Yes. Verse nine, then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. So these are daily provisions for millions. And it's going to happen for decades. You know, they're going to be out there for 40 years. Neither the quail nor the manna can be explained as natural provisions, although many have tried to explain them. Oh, I the first time I read this, I was like Googling, what could this have been? Could it have been mushrooms? Could it have been? Because it shows up 
they eat it and then it, if they wait too long or something, it goes bad, right? Right, exactly. Well, here's why it can't be explained. We're talking about almost 2 million people for 365 days a year for 40 years. Quail, we, we do know is a real food source even today, but it couldn't happen naturally in that quantity to feed the masses every single day. And I have to say, I would be guilty of grumbling if it were me because it's you don't like quail. quail. I don't <laughs> like quail at all. It does not taste like chicken. And if it did, there would be a, a quail filet, but there is no quail filet. There's only Chick-fil-A. So there you go. <laughs> how about it's manna? not good. How do, you, how do you feel about little thin flakes <laughs> of frost no, that you have to no, eat off the ground? There's no chicken and biscuits. There's no chicken and manna. There's chicken and biscuits. And this is why we have chicken and biscuits. <laughs> and that's why Chick-fil-A yeah. is of the Lord. Exactly. But the manna... And Chick-fil-A does not sponsor this podcast, by the way. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I, now well, we understand quail because we can picture quail. We know what quail tastes like. Most, most of us do, but some of us don't. Manna is a complete mystery. We just don't know what it was made of. Many people have tried to explain it. And there is... And, and there was so much of it. And an omer per person, an omer is two quarts a day. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of... Uh, I wouldn't want to eat that much. Two quarts a day, it sounds painful. Well, they don't want to eat it either because they start getting tired <laughs> of it as we're tired. about to see. <laughs> I don't blame them. Verse 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. I love that Moses has a temper. Yeah. I just want to say that. <laughs> Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands? And my instructions. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Well, right. Somebody else we know rested on the seventh day too. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to talk about this cool concept. And I want you to track with me, so pay attention. There are patterns in the Bible um, that directly point to how God created us psychologically as people. And there is a process for learning to trust even in infants. So what God is doing here is he is treating the nation of Israel like a little child, even like an infant. So this process in a human infant is called attachment. And God is trying to get the nation of Israel to attach to him because they kind of lost their faith for those 400 years in Egypt. God is taking the Israelites through the process just as a mother would a newborn child. So let me explain this process. And 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 also that's why God is showing them such grace because he's seeing them as a little child. And, you know, with a little child, you have a lot of grace. No matter how much they whine and cry and have fits and tantrums, there's a lot of grace. But in, why? But 
I know. Why? I just used to go, why do you think? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is the attachment process in infants. And this is what it looks like. There's this cycle a newborn goes through. And if you've ever had a child, when you first give birth, babies have this panicked cry. And we kind of heard that panic cry in the Israelites as why the Egyptians. Yeah, why? And what happens with a newborn infant is over the course of a couple weeks, they lose the panic cry. They move from the fear side of their brain to the other side of their brain because guess what? It in in the in the day of an infant, a newborn, they are picked up and cared for probably 30 times. You know, between changing, between comforting, between feeding, you, you, you nurse every two to three hours. They're, they're cared for. Every time they're uncomfortable, they're picked up. And so what happens in their brain is they learn, I don't have to have that panicked cry because that big person that I really can't even see yet is going to come get me and take care of me. I feel wet. I'm going to cry. But I don't have to panic cry because... Eh, they're going to take care of it. I'm going to be dry in a few minutes. I just have to give a cry. And that's what you see the Israelites just doing. Now, what that does for the child is it teaches them as they get bigger to trust that big person, whom soon their eyes develop enough that they can see the big person. Now, remember when we left the Israelites, they could not yet see the cloud really, but they're going to learn to see. And that's what God's trying to, to bring them to, just like the newborn. So when the newborn can see this big person, then they develop a specific trust. I trust that woman and that man. They're the ones that pick me up the most. They're the ones that I find comfort in. They're the ones that I trust. And as the child grows, they then learn to use words and they ask their parents for their needs. They don't have to cry anymore. They don't have to panic anymore. And the child learns to depend on their parent for everything. Now, Israel is a newborn nation that needs to attach to God and learn to trust him and him alone. God takes them through this exact same cycle. They are fearful and they grumble for their basic needs, food, water. God provides for their basic needs. He builds their daily trust to the point that he says, only collect what you need for that day. God is moving them on to the toddler stage. Use your words. Don't wail. Don't cry. Ask for what you need. Pray, trusting that I'm going to provide it. Ultimately, God desires a people with mature faith, a people that trust him in all things. To do that, the Israelites will have to learn what we know from the New Testament. For us, learning to trust God begins with believing in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In John 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus has this long discussion with the people about this. And most of the discussion centers around manna and bread and even grumbling. Okay, so Jesus is having this discussion. How many years later? Two thousand years later. Yeah. So and again, we're there's still, no manna still showing up. No, but, but these they people know the know story exactly what he's talking about because, because they knew this story they in their celebrate history. Celebrate the story every, every year, year in the Passover. The point Jesus makes is this: verse thirty-two in John six. Jesus said to them, "Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, manna. He's talking about, but it is my Father who gives." you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God 
God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's it, talking about himself. He's talking about himself, yeah. but it was but manna back that. then. Now it's him. New covenant. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, never need manna again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, that water again. For us today, learning to trust God builds by knowing the word of God. Like you just heard that, that Jesus is the bread of life. In Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted in the desert. You got ahead of me on this one, Heather. Sorry. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 when the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is preparing the Israelites for what comes next for them. Trusting God is more than their daily bread or daily manna. God wants them to trust him for their way of life by obeying his words, which are coming soon in the Ten Commandments, which we have the word of God in the Bible. It is our daily bread. Verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So every single day, they woke up and gathered the bread they needed for that day. And just what they needed. Just what they needed. So go every time you're in church or wherever you are, and you hear this prayer from Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. This is Matthew telling us today how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Every time you hear that, I want you to think of the Israelites for 40 years, every single day, receiving that manna and learning to trust God that he is above all their circumstances. And that's what that prayer for us today from Matthew means, that every day we're supposed to trust him for our daily bread, for our circumstances. And I love that you compared or you showed when Jesus compared this to him, because there are so much symbolism that goes along along with that. And even today we take communion that is his body mm-hmm. and bread. And it was really him. It's in Matthew, but it, but this was Jesus telling them. They said, Father, teach us how to pray, right? Yeah. So oh. he tells you to ask for your daily bread. And all you have to do to get that bread is to get into the word and spend some time with I God. cannot wait till we get to Ruth and talk about Bethlehem, the house of bread. There's so much about bread in the Bible. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited 
by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.